people, especially today, are seeking advice. Advice regarding all kinds of things, and advice especially regarding this issue, raising children. And unfortunately, many people aren't aware that there is a book, Advice, written by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by the creator of the world, the one who is best suited to advise. That book is called the Torah. The, most people refer to these 613 commandments in the Torah as Taryag Mitzvot, 613 commandments. The Zohar Kadosh refers to the, these 613 as Taryag Itin Oraita, 613 pieces of advice of the Torah. Every single mitzvah <coughs> is advice and guidance as to how to live properly. <clears throat> if we study the Torah properly, we'll have the advice that we need to address every single concern in life. <clears throat> Rabbi Nachman taught many things during his lifetime. There were certain times in the year when he told his students these are the most important times that he wants them to come to him to receive for him to give over his knowledge, his teachings. Out of all the Shabbats of the entire year, he chose Shabbat Chanukah. We know the holiday of Chanukah is eight days, which means there's always at least one Shabbat in Chanukah. Sometimes there are even two. And he said that the Shabbat of the year that he wanted to be together with his students, to be able to give over wisdom, knowledge, advice, Shabbat Chanukah. <coughs> The Hebrew word Chanukah has several meanings. <coughs> One of them is Chinuch. Chinuch means education, specifically educating children. There's a pasuk, Chanuch lanar al pidarko. Educate a child, each child, according to his path, which right away tells us something very important about education that there isn't one path, there isn't one key that works for everyone. Every single person is different, every single child is different. The, we just recently had the holiday of Tisha B'Av, and we read Echa, the Megillat Echa, which begins with the words Rabati Badeot, I'm sorry, Rabati Bagoyim, that the Jews are many among the Goyim, among the nations, dispersed among the nations, and one of the interpretations of that is Rabati Badeot, many different opinions, many different ideas. People, Jews, think, and they think differently from each other. And because we think differently from each other, because we have different understandings of things, in order to teach, a person has to recognize the differences between each person and be able to relate to each person differently. We find that when, when Moshe Rabbeinu was about to leave the world, after 120 years, and after leading the Jews for 40 years, from when he took them out of Egypt, throughout the years in the desert, and the Torah refers to him as the ultimate leader of the Jewish people, the Zohar Kodesh calls him Raya Mehemna, the trustworthy shepherd, where Hashem says there was no one like Moshe Rabbeinu that was as loyal to Hashem 
and as loyal to the people, to the Jewish people, prepared to put his life on the line whenever needed in order to help us, in order to help the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu is about to leave the world and he wants to, he wants to be responsible. He wants to make sure that there's someone to take his place. So he asks Hashem to please provide a leader, a shepherd, a new shepherd who's going to lead the Jewish people. Now he mentions in, the, in that discussion in Parsha Pinchas, the criteria for a new leader is mentioned, a leader of the Jewish people. You would think it would be 20, 30 pages of requirements, like a resume of a person who's applying for an important job. He wants to show all the qualities and qualifications that he has for that job. There's one line, one line that describes what a, a true leader of the Jewish people requires. Ish asheruach bo. A person who has the divine spirit of Hashem in him. And Rashi quotes the Gemara. This means a person who knows how to relate to the different ruchot, all the different people in the Jewish nation. He understands and realizes that we're all different, and he knows how to relate to each and every single one differently. Now we are called, the Torah refers to us as Hashem's children. Banim atem l'Hashem alokechem. We are the children of Hashem. We're the children of Hashem. The leader of the Jewish people is our parent, is the daddy. A parent is called a rabbi, a teacher, and a rabbi is called a parent. We know the Gemara says a person who teaches someone Torah, it's considered as if they gave birth to that person. So we see that a rabbi, a teacher, is a parent. And when the Torah speaks about parents, it tells us, Veshinantam levanecha, you will teach Torah to your children. So we see that these two are very similar, in fact. So if we're talking about the criteria for being a leader of the Jewish nation, and if we're talking about being a parent, there's similarities. A parent is a leader in the home. They're leading, they're guiding the house. And here, <coughs> on Shabbat Chanukah, <coughs> Rabbi Nachman gave a lecture where he spoke about incredible points that can help us understand how we fulfill this role properly. He quotes a pasuk, Ki In order to lead the Jewish people, you must be kind. It requires kindness. And he says, it's only a person who has this quality of kindness has, can, be, can lead. And, and the person has to know how to lead with kindness. And he gives an example. When we're dealing with people that are wicked or murderers, there you're not allowed to show kindness. You're not allowed to say, let's be nice to him, maybe he'll stop killing. If we know that a person has murdered several times, then kindness is not going to help. That. It's not going to help that person, and it's not going to help the world. We have to make sure that that person is no longer a threat to the world and no longer a threat to themselves. They're not going to harm themselves, put themselves into a worse position. And he says a person who doesn't know how to deal with kindness can take a child who's four days old, and feed them a steak, <coughs> filet mignon. <coughs> we want to really be nice to this child. We want to give them really something special. We're going to give them, and they can, they can murder the child by doing that, kill the child with kindness. 
So you have to know when you're dealing with a child to give them what they need. That a child at that age requires milk. And for an adult, for most adults, dairy products can weaken them. Can weaken them, can cause all kinds of difficult problems. So it's extremely important to understand, not cookie cutter. This isn't a factory that's producing thousands of radios with, that are all the same. Every human being, every child is different. And once we understand that, we have to know <clears throat> to be able to get to understand each child, what they're like, what they're about, in order to know how to relate to them the right way, how to teach them properly. And Rabbi Nachman says that an example of one who had this kindness was Moshe Rabbeinu, because we see that he really cared. How do we see that he really cared? That even when he was given an opportunity, he was told the Jews were misbehaving, and Hashem said, you know what? I'll get rid of them, and we'll start over. We'll make a new nation coming from you. A person who has any self-pride, a person who's concerned about themselves, would say, that sounds tempting. That sounds like an interesting offer. Moshe Rabbeinu refused it completely, ignored it completely, and he said, if you forgive them, fine. If you don't forgive them, if you're getting rid of them, I'm first. Get rid of me first. That's, that's parenting, that's leadership. It's caring about someone else. Parenting is not that how are these children going to serve me? How are they going to benefit me? What am I going to get out of it? It's, the, it's, it's, the, it's knowing, it's the desire to give, to give to others. <clears throat> and now, Rabbi Nachman says that if we're talking about raising children, if we're talking about bringing children into the world, and we want human children, not animals, we want to raise human beings, not animals, that requires dat. That means we're trying to raise intelligent beings. Because that's what really defines the difference between a human and an animal. An animal is called chai. It's also a living thing. But a human being is supposed to be a much higher level of intelligence. And he says that it's only if a person has this intelligence that they're really classified as a human being. Otherwise, it's an animal that looks human, that looks like a human being, but not really a human being. And, and what is this dot, that we, what, is the, what is the real intelligence? Real intelligence is not necessarily biology, chemistry, mathematics. Real intelligence is recognition of Hashem. Recognition that the world did not come from, from, from nothingness. There's a creator for the world. And there's a purpose to the existence of the world. That's true dot. When we talk about sins, a person committing a sin, a sin is a display. The Torah defines a sin as a lack of dot, lack of inter, a person acting in an unintelligent manner. If a person knows that if I open this door, there's going to be reward, there'll be something wonderful that's going to come from it. If I open a different door, it's going to lead to pain and suffering. A person has a little bit of intelligence, they're going to make the right decision. The Torah tells us a person only commits a sin if there's a ruach shtut, a spirit of insanity that takes over. The person becomes crazy. 
they lose their intellect, and that's what allows them to go ahead and commit a sin. And therefore, Rabbi Nachman explains, if we talk about having pity, showing kindness, kindness could be buying an ice cream for a child, buying a bicycle. He says those are kindness, but it doesn't compare in any way at all whatsoever to giving a child that, giving them understanding, an, a real understanding of what life is about. Because the Torah tells us, Ein yisurin below avon, Ein misa below chet, Ein yisurin below avon, that a person doesn't die without sin. There's no such thing as suffering without sin. Which means, Rabbi Nachman puts a little spin on it and says, the only thing that's really defined as suffering is sin. Because other types of suffering, generally, it's something temporary. A person goes through something and it passes. A child is crying. I just saw this yesterday. A child crying hysterically. You'd think the world came to an end. They wanted something. They wanted a particular thing. They got it. In one second, they stopped crying. You would have, you're watching that child cry, you would think, who knows what happened, what tragedy happened. It was no big deal. And, and again, there are parents who, when they see a child crying like that, give him whatever they want, whether it's good for them or bad for them, thinking that, you know, not realizing that that crying is something very temporary. Sometimes giving a child something that's not good for them or training them that whenever they scream, whenever they cry, they get what they need, you're turning them into weaklings. You're turning them where there's not going to be an intelligent decision of whether I want this, whether I should have this or not. It's just a matter if I scream or I scream louder or I scream long enough, I'll get it, that kind of thing. There's a mashal, a, a, a parable that was told about a king who had different cities in his, in his kingdom and some of them behaved properly. There was one particular city where they were always engaged in, in all types of cheating, trying to cheat the government out of their taxes, black market activities, and they were warned once and caught, tried many times everything to help them, couldn't help them. So the king decided he's gonna fix them once and for all. He put a gigantic wall, they built a gigantic wall around the city. No one leaves, no one leaves, no one comes. This is who you are. You want to earn a living? Do commerce with each other. So there's no chance of smuggling in goods, smuggling out goods, that kind of thing. This seemed to be a very good fix. The only exception, the only time anybody left the city was when there was a funeral. They didn't bury, bury people outside the city. So they'd open the gates of the city, there'd be guards that would accompany the people out, bury the coffin, come back in, everything is okay. A long while later, the king was traveling, and he's riding by not far from the city, and he looks in the distance, he sees a funeral procession. And he's curious, he's watching it, watching it for a few moments, and then he tells one of his generals, I want you to go there immediately and stop the funeral. Stop a funeral? Immediately. He rushes, quickly, quickly, he gets there, everybody stop, nobody move. And the king also approaches, and, and everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen. He says, open the coffin. Open a coffin. Open the coffin immediately. They open the coffin, they look inside. There's no corpse. 
There's jewelry and other things, all kinds of smuggling, things that they were smuggling out of the city, into the city. That was in this coffin. The king says, everybody tells his soldiers, gather all the people, everyone in prison. A day or two later, the king shows up. He wants to see, he wants to see these people. And they hear that the king, they see that the king arrived. They're crying and pleading, please forgive us. Crying, desperate crying, please let us out. The king looks at them and he's just smiling silently. He's ignoring their, their crying completely. One of the people there decides, he gets up the guts to say to the king, how did you know? How, how did you know? The king says, I'll tell you exactly how I knew. Did you ever see a funeral procession where no one's crying? There's no tears at all? <clears throat> you didn't cry then, you'll cry now, you're crying now. And this was said as a parable, a mashal, that parents, true, proper parenting, requires sometimes saying no, saying no to a child. Or <coughs> having a child do something that they don't really want to do, they don't like it. And yet it's important, it's important for their health, it's important for their education, whatever it is. And, and a child starts crying or complaining, and the parent says, I can't, I can't do this to my child. I can't see my child crying. Not knowing that if we don't cry now, we're going to cry much, much worse, much, much worse later. If this is something important that the child needed that was for the benefit of the child, if we don't cry now, chas v'shalom, if we're not willing to experience a little bit of difficulty now, it's going to be much, much harder, much, much harder and much worse at a later time. In relationships, relationships between parents and children, and even among parents themselves, the Torah tells us that there are different qualities, different character traits. There's love, and the Torah speaks quite a bit about love, our relationship with Hashem. Hashem wants us to love Him in a relationship with parents, children and parents. It says, Kabed show respect to parents, and the respect sometimes is in a matter of love, serving them, helping them in whatever way you can. And also there's, an, there's another character trait called Yir'ah. Yir'ah means fear, Yir'ah means respect. And, and respect the Torah, for example, when we talk about parents and children, the Torah says a child cannot sit in the parent's chair. In a house, <clears throat> there's a table, there are chairs at the table. It has to be clear that the chair that the parent is sitting on is not the same as the chair that the children are sitting on. Either it's a completely different type of chair, or even if it's the same, but everybody knows the chair at the head of the table, that's daddy's chair, that's mommy's chair. And a child doesn't sit there because that's an element of respect. That's an element of a child always being able to recognize that we're not equal. Because if we are equal, then a parent says you shouldn't do that and a child says, yes, I should. Parent says you can't do that, yes, I can. 
you back, back and forth. Unless a child is taught from the beginning, from the beginning that we're not equal, that the fact that a parent is 20 years older, even, even, even if it's not, the Torah tells us when it comes to a non-Jew, if a person sees an elderly non-Jew, we're required to stand up for them, we're required to show respect for them. Why? Because with age comes experience and knowledge. There are rare exceptions of people who get older and they don't get smarter. But most people, most normal people who are living in this world for just the age alone teaches them a lot <coughs> and makes them more advanced, know things that people that are far younger than them wouldn't necessarily know. And that deserves respect. Respect meaning a willingness to hear what an older person has to say, a willingness to take advice from them, that kind of thing. So there's a concept of yir'ah and there's a concept of ahava, respect, fear. fear. What does fear mean? Fear of getting beaten up? There are parents that, that do that kind of thing. There is that type of thing. Rabbi Nachman once made a comment. He said, a child you hit? Implying that that's something that either shouldn't be done or should be done very rarely with extreme, extreme thought before such a thing is done. It shouldn't be necessary. If we have the proper training, if we put in the proper time and effort to educate a child properly, it shouldn't be necessary. But the concept of consequences, the concept of reward and punishment, we know that Hashem, who is our parent, Hashem, who is the father and mother of mankind, designed the world in a way with his reward and punishment. person would say, what are we, a bunch of kids? That you have to get a lollipop if you do something good and you have to get punished if you do something bad? The answer is yes. Most of us, most people other than the greatest of tzaddikim, it's only when a person gets to a very high level of knowledge and experience and achieves a very high level of perfection, that person, even without any reward at all, if they understand that something is the right thing to do, they'll do it. If it's the wrong thing to do, they won't do it. But other than the most righteous people in the world, most normal, rational people, we know that the police, the police have signs speeding, this and this, don't go over this amount. If a person knows that they're not being watched, or if a person knows that there are no consequences, we know that most people, unfortunately, won't listen. A person gets a $500 fine, or their license is suspended for three months, six months, they get the message, or if they hear that it happened to somebody else. That element of fear commands a certain degree of respecting boundaries, respecting knowing so. So unfortunately, there are secular educators and other educators who have suggested different plans than what the Torah suggests. There, and there are parents who thought they know better. They thought, imagine, if I punish a child, they listen to me. If I reward them more and more, if I give them more and more good, if I give them everything they want, of course they're going to listen to me, right? And unfortunately, most people that have tried that have seen that it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It seems to sound logically. If I give somebody $100, they'll do something for me. If I give them $200, of course they'll do that for me. It doesn't always work. There's other criteria that get involved. And especially when you're dealing with children, 
I said, we're, we're all children on a certain level, but if we take it down some notches, children from six, seven, eight year old, or 12 year teenagers, etc., etc., for sure, if there's no element of consequences, if there's no aspect, if there isn't respect, then, then it, it can't possibly work. So the Torah tells us we need both of these. We need yirah, we need respect, fear, we need punishment, consequences, and we need reward. We need an element of reward that when somebody does something good, they're rewarded for it, that helps the person, that gives the person a certain degree of encouragement, additional encouragement to do the right thing. The Torah tells us, Hashem asks, Hashem says to a Jew, I want you to try to climb to a level, to get to a level where you're willing to do what I ask of you even without reward. But all of us know that that's a very high level. That's a very, if, if, if the, the great tzaddikim attempt to get to that kind of level. For ordinary people like us, in order to keep us in line, in order to get us to do the right thing, there's no question at all that the fact that we know in front of our minds or in back of our minds that Hashem promises that if you lead a proper life, there'll be eternal reward for it, that's one of the things that encourages us to do the right thing. So we have these two elements, Yir'ah and Ahava, and the Mekubalim tell us that I'll show you in the words. We know that the Hebrew language is called Lashon Kodesh. It's a holy language. It's different from all other languages in that every letter, every word has incredible meanings on all levels. The Hebrew word for respect is Yir'ah, Yud, Resh, Alev, Hey. The Hebrew word for love is Ahava, Aleph, hey, bet, hey. There's an overlap. There's a perfect overlap. The second half of Yir'ah is the first half of Ahava. If a person is taught respect, fear of consequences, fear of punishment, then in learning that, it's going to help the person develop a love, a healthy love for the other person. Because again, if they see that it's not being done indiscriminately. I'm not being punished for no reason at all. If, I, if, if I'm told to choose, there's two choices, a good and a bad. If you choose, make the wrong choice, there's consequences. That doesn't make the child hate the parent. That makes the child respect the parent to a degree because they see that there's a certain honesty involved. There's a recognition that there's good and bad. There's right and wrong. And if a child isn't taught that up front, then as they get older and you want to tell them that this is wrong, they don't know what wrong means because as a child, they were never shown that there's right and wrong, there's good and bad, there's reward and punishment. They never, they never heard that, they never saw that. So this is, this is one of the important components. Another component, the Torah tells us that one of the best things in life is simcha, joy, happiness. When a person is happy, they're availing themselves to the, to the divine presence of Hashem. When a person is depressed, it's a disconnect, chas v'shalom, from Hashem. 
when, when Adam and Eve ate from the snake, ate from the tree, they followed the advice of the snake. They ate from the tree of wisdom where Hashem said, if you eat from this, you're going to die. The punishment was depression. That's the wording used in the Pasuk. That for a woman to give birth is going to require difficulty, struggle. The term that's used is etzev. For a person to earn a livelihood, is going to be, there's going to be itzavon. Itzavon means depression. Now depression goes together with hopelessness, anger, resentment, negativity. All of that is under this umbrella term of itzavon. Whereas simcha, joy, happiness, the divine spirit of Hashem is called joy, simcha. The words lev simcha are bigimatria shechina, the divine spirit of Hashem. So in order for children, in order for children to be able to have a healthy childhood, to be able to develop healthy properly, they need to be in a happy environment. They need to see joy and happiness. <clears throat> it's told that years ago, when the Ashkenazi Jews, when they lived in Europe and Poland and those countries, when life was difficult, I'm talking about pre-Holocaust even, when there were difficulties, there were parents somehow, sometimes that when they had to observe the holidays, the Jewish holiday, when a woman was preparing for Shabbat and peeling the potatoes and cleaning the house, and, or a father was, was struggling to go, to go pre- prepare matzot for Pesach, and they would say sometimes, it's difficult to be a Jew. And they didn't really mean it. They, it was just an expression. It was just a, 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 a way. I, I'm not planning on becoming a non-Jew. I'm not planning on converting out of the origin. It's, it's a way that people talk. People say things, you know. They, they didn't mean I'm going to quit or anything like that. But homes in which children heard that kind of talk very often, a child who hears that doesn't know how to interpret that. You ask a child, what do you prefer, difficult or easy? Most children will say easy because they don't know that easy isn't necessarily successful. The Torah teaches us that things that come easy usually aren't that significant. Anything that's significant, yagata matzata tamen. If a person says they put in a lot of effort and they were successful, they struggled and they succeeded, that's real success usually. Real success is not easy money or easy street. So here, because people spoke a certain way, whereas, whereas if children saw parents that were happy, that were happy about life, they were happy when they saw each other, a father comes home from work and he gets, why didn't you buy that? Why didn't you? You didn't bring this. I'm, I, I, I was with the kids all day. To, if, if a person doesn't get the right kind of welcome coming in, children see that and they know something's, not, something's wrong here, something's not good. It's unhealthy, it's unpleasant, that kind of thing. The Torah tells us that when people who like each other haven't seen each other for a period of time, they haven't seen each other for 30 days or more, they make a beracha, shechianu v'kiyamanu v'giyanu l'asmanazeh. Shechianu, I bless Hashem who has given me life. What do you mean life? I was, I was alive yesterday and I, who died? I, nobody died. 
I'm, I'm alive today, I was alive yesterday. Shechianu means that when I see a friend, when I see somebody that I like, I come to life. If I was feeling weak, sad, tired, I see my wife, I see my husband, I come to life. There's a pasuk, Re'ei chayim im ha'isha asher ahavta. Experience living with the woman that you love. So if children see that when a, when a husband sees a wife, he comes alive, he, there's, there's a smile, there's, there's a joy, happiness, he's exhausted after a day's where all the struggles, but I come home, I see my wife, I see my children, I, I'm infused with whole new life, that delivers a certain message. If that's not there, if the simcha is not there, if the joy is not there, then chas v'shalom, it's the opposite. I'm running the other way. Whatever they're doing, I want to make sure I'm doing something differently because I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be angry. I don't want someone yelling at me or me yelling at somebody, that, that, that kind of thing. Now, here again, there are two critical elements in the Torah. The Torah speaks about two branches. One branch is our relationship with Hashem, Ben Adam Lamakom. A woman lighting candles for Shabbat, preparing for Shabbat, a man putting on tefillin, tzitzit, mezuzah. There are many commandments in the Torah which, dis- which define our relationship with Hashem and Hashem's relationship with us. There's another major branch in the Torah which is our relationship with our fellow man. And there are many, many laws and mitzvot that define that, that explain our relationship with our fellow men. Here again, a healthy, wholesome home is a home where both of these things are there, both of these things are present, and both of these things are being developed and taught and shared. If either one of the two is not there, or if it's not, if it's not shown clearly enough, we're missing half the cake person has ingredients for a cake. There's flour and water and baking soda. And leave out the flour or leave out the water. You're not going to get a very, very good cake. <clears throat> so these, both of these things are critical and they feed on each other. We know that we're coming towards the end of the month of Av now. We're going to Elul. Soon we're going to have Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. When it, these are called High Holy Days. And in these High Holy Days... We're taught, we spend more time in the synagogue, we say additional prayers, all kinds of things. The Torah makes it perfectly clear that all of that helps 50%. Lifnei Hashem titaru. That purifies the purification that you need regarding your relationship with Hashem. But before you're ready to make peace with Hashem, you better make sure you made peace with your fellow man, with your fellow human being. You cannot come to Hashem asking for forgiveness if you didn't first, and we know the Torah shows us examples, incredibly harsh examples. We're told one of the greatest rabbis that ever lived, Rabbi Akiva, had at one point, at a peak in his career, he had 24,000 students, 24,000 rabbis, and we're told that they were only missing one item. The, the Torah only mentions one area that they were weak in, which imp- implying everything else they did right. They came to synagogue, they came early, that Shabbat, everything. 
the mutual respect, the mutual respect between each other, that wasn't in place. 24,000 people died in a period of 33 days. That's close to 1,000 funerals a day of rabbis. Picture what we're talking about. And this isn't non-Jews, this isn't Nazis or Romans, this is plague, this is divine retribution because of this one thing, because we didn't realize that a major component of religion is how I treat my wife with respect or how my wife treats me or how I treat my children with respect. I don't, the, the Torah says when a person gets angry, anger is idol worship. Anger is called, who's the idol? I'm the idol. When a person gets angry and they, they raise their voice, they're yelling, they lose control. Lose control means there's no Hashem. Because if I were in a room with a king, with the president of the United States, and somebody pushed me, would I start yelling? Would I start screaming? So if a person starts yelling or screaming, the implication is there's no Hashem. There's no, I'm Hashem. I am I'm Hashem. Because if I believe that Hashem is present, I couldn't possibly break loose. I couldn't scream. I couldn't break a plate. I couldn't throw a dish or something. Impossible. So the Torah compares it to idol worship, chas v'shalom. Here again, these kind of things terrorize children. They destroy, they destroy home, and they set an example. They set an example. People learn much better by what they see than what they hear. A child here, don't say that, don't, and they see the pit, don't yell, don't, you're not, don't yell, and I'm yelling. Obviously, the message isn't going to get across so well. Why are you screaming? And, and I'm screaming. There's a pasuk, divrei chachamim benachat nishmaim. That people who have intelligence, they speak softly, they speak carefully, peacefully, in order to get the message across. One of, the, one of the great rabbis, the closest student of Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Natanzal, who wrote many books, thousands of pages, and one of the things that he stressed in his books was the importance of mourning the destruction of the Holy Temple, the Bet HaMikdash. And he spoke about that one of the ways that a person shows they really feel this is by getting up at midnight, waking up at midnight, and saying the special prayers, Tikkun Chatzot, where we express our sorrow over the fact that we don't have the Holy Temple now, we don't have the peace and everything that they had at that time. And he writes about it often, showing how important this is. His students write that during the winter, when they lived in Russia and Ukraine, it gets chatzot is like 11 o'clock, 11 p.m. It's very early. It gets dark very early. It gets dark 4 o'clock already. It's dark. It gets dark. Rabbi Natanzal never went to sleep early, and he would wake up every single night at that time. When his kids were going, were being taught, they were being educated, they were in school, and they came home and they were going to have dinner. There was no such thing as the kids eating dinner without the parent at the table eating with them. Why? Because otherwise, how are children going to learn how to eat properly? How is a child supposed to learn how to eat properly? How much to eat, what to eat, to make a blessing before I eat, a blessing after I eat, 
to think about what I'm eating. The Torah compares the table of a Jew to a Mizbeach. We're told during the time that we had the Holy Temple, if a person committed a sin, they brought sacrifices on the altar in the Holy Temple, in the Bet HaMikdash. We don't have a Holy Temple now. The Torah tells us that the table in the home is a Mizbeach. That is the altar. If a Jew eats properly, the food that they're eating is compared to sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash. If a Jew doesn't eat properly, not. This was setting an example of priorities. Today we're living in a time where there, the, the distractions, 50 years ago we were lucky, there were only house phones. 100 years ago we were luckier, there were no house phones. There was one phone in a city, you know, wherever it is. Today we're blessed. We did away with house phones. Then there was only one phone that could make trouble for a whole family. Today, each person, the baby has a phone, and the kids, the six-year-olds have a phone, everyone has a phone. So everyone can be distracted. No one has to talk to each other. Everyone can be distracted. No one's looking at each other. There's no healthy communication. Kids today have that they all abbreviate ADD, DDZ, all kinds of cute abbreviations, which are all nonsense, all silliness. It's just basic living. It's, it's, it's going back to basic living. If a child doesn't, isn't taught to speak, to communicate with, an, with a, another child, with a parent, they're not taught to listen. Parent is talking and the kid doesn't hear what they're saying because the kid is looking at their video game or their iPhone or their Q phone, whatever it is. They're, 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 not living, they're not living a healthy life. They're not, they're not being taught to live in, in, a, in a positive, healthy way. For, and, and again, it's a lack of respect. It's a lack of respect. In many of the synagogues, they put signs. When you come into the synagogue, please be sure to deposit your phone here before going in. Why? You're going to meet with Hashem. When a person, a businessman, who's going to see another businessman regarding a deal of a million dollars, something relatively insignificant today, a million dollars. In some people, that's a year's budget, an annual budget. It's not the end of the world. A person made a million dollars. He's not set for life anymore. Person's going in to see a client. They shut the phone off. They put the phone on. There's no question that I'm not going to allow myself to be disturbed because, again, it would be a disrespect to the person I'm going to see if a phone is going off at that time. We, we talk about going into a synagogue, a person meeting with their wife, or a wife meeting with a husband, or children, a, a father who is away for eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. Now he has 40 minutes, possibly, to have an opportunity to communicate, to hear what a child is saying, or to, to give over, to transmit something important. If the phone takes away 10 or 20 or 40 of those minutes, imagine what you're trading in for what. And then the child comes to an age when the parent wants to speak to the child, and the child, and they can't imagine, why isn't the child listening? The answer is because I didn't listen to them. When they wanted to speak, I wasn't available. So, so if, if I'm speaking, it's perfectly natural and normal. Why, why listen? I, this is the example that I saw. Now there's another incredible important point that, that a person says, I tell a child is growing up and there's reality. 
a child is going to reach a certain age, the expectation is that they're getting to a point where they have to be able to stand on their own two feet. They're not going to live with their parents till they're 70, 80 years old. They're expected a certain age to go out and build a life for themselves. Get married, build a family, earn their own living, that kind of thing. <clears throat> I want I want to be able to to I want to I want to be able that my child should be able to hear, to listen and be willing to accept what I'm saying. What, what, what's the question? What I'm saying makes sense. Why shouldn't they, why wouldn't they listen? The Gemara tells us, Kol mi yirat shamayim, dvarav nishmayim. If a person has respect for Hashem, their words will be listened, will, will penetrate. Their words will be heard. And the word nishmayim means two things. They'll hear it. And number two, they'll be able to accept what the person is saying. Rabbi Nachman takes it a step further and he says when such a person speaks without raising their voice at all their voice becomes like thunder like thunder the Gemara tells us that Hashem created thunder in order to smooth out the crookedness in the heart we know that in the heart there's a right side and a left side there's good thoughts and there's bad thoughts there's good emotions and bad emotions there's Yetzer Tov and Yetzer Hara. A smooth heart, Yishre Lev, means a heart that's healthy, happy, faith in Hashem, all the positive things. Crookedness in the heart implies all kinds of negativity. So the Torah tells us that Hashem created thunder. Thunder will remove the crookedness in the heart. Why? Because thunder frightens people. People who think, I, my, uh, my family, my company, my house, my car, suddenly they had crashing thunder, they're reminded that not I, there's something bigger than I, there's something greater than I. So thunder, so the Torah tells us a person who has yirat shamayim, they have respect for Hashem, they have this quality of yirat, their words will be more readily accepted, more easily heard, even if there's crookedness in the heart, even there's blockages. So I need to know again <coughs> that I need to work on myself. If I want people, if I want my children to hear what I'm saying, if I want my husband to hear what I'm saying, if I want my wife to hear what I'm saying, I have to make sure, I have to check myself, where am I in Yirat Shamayim? Where am I in my respect for Hashem? And respect for Hashem takes on many, many different forms. I, I, I remember one of my rabbis, when a time came that I, was, I had the privilege of bringing him to shul, bringing him to synagogue for the prayer, and the prayer was called for five o'clock, and by car from his house to the synagogue took five minutes to seven minutes. I asked him, what time should I pick you up? He said, 4.30. Four. I said, what are we having, a pre-game? He said, you never come on time to, who comes on time to the prayer? You don't come on time. You don't walk in when they're starting to pray. You, a person has a meeting. If a person has a meeting with the president, do they come on, are they going to show up on time? Or are they going to be there a, an hour earlier or a day earlier? Take a hotel room and be there before to make sure that I'm going to be there a half hour, an hour before to make sure that that's, that shows that I respect there's something important going to happen. And when something important is going to happen, you don't want to be late. You don't even want to be on time. You want to be there before to make sure that everybody's clear that this is something important. 
And again, there are many other examples. This concept in, in a synagogue. A synagogue is a, a holy place where we're told the divine spirit of Hashem is there. If people are talking about other things, talking business, talking vacations, acting, acting out in a place like that, or if children are not taught, if children are not taught that this is the house of Hashem, there's a playroom in the house, the playroom in the house, you take out your toys, you can sing, you can run, but this is not a playroom. This is a, this is a miniature holy temple. This is, and here, when we come into here, there's a whole different attitude. One of the holiest rabbis, the Ariya Kadosh, the Ariza writes, that when a person is entering into a synagogue, you're supposed to stop at the entranceway and pause for a few seconds, not a few minutes, could be five seconds or 10 seconds, and the person's supposed to think, I want to refocus my mind that I'm going into, I'm entering in front of the king right now. I'm entering into the palace of the king and, and a whole different type of behavior here than when I'm in my own home, my own living room. And the Ariya Kadosh says, those five seconds a person can prepare a person to draw upon themselves Ruach HaKodesh, the divine spirit of Hashem. I remember seeing my rabbi, Reb Michal Dorfman, every time, I, I didn't see this, other people doing this. We walk up the steps to go into the synagogue, we come, open the door, and stop, and wait there for a few seconds, and then, what's he, and then I was to see in the writings of the Arizal, that the Arizal says this is something incredibly important. Those few seconds are a game changer. Because again, most people believe in Hashem. They do believe in Hashem. They know the synagogue is a holy place. But we're human beings. We're running. We're on a treadmill all day. And I'm running and I'm used to saying whatever. I'm used to talking about whatever I'm talking about. And I forget. I forget myself. I forget that this is a completely different room. A whole different set of rules. And if a person, and, and what this tells us is, people are expecting that in order to raise children properly, we're going to have to learn the deepest secrets, the most complicated algorithms. Sometimes five seconds is a game changer. A child wants to ask a parent for something, and a parent is in the middle of doing something else, and, and the parent recognizes that it's important. They tell the child, what you're about to say is very important, I'm going to finish this in a moment, and I'll be right with you. I want to hear what you have to say. That, that delivers a certain message. And when a child is feeling ignored, ignored, not heard, not listened to, it builds a resentment inside, and the resentment sometimes will only show itself years later, and not even consciously. It's not that the child says, now I'm going to get back at them, now I'm going to get back at them. I didn't forget. It's a, a subconscious resentment negativity of you don't care, you don't care. And, and that develops for a certain period of time. And then when the parent wants to say something, and shouldn't you respect, shouldn't you realize that what I'm saying is so important? The answer is, you don't care, you are not my friend, you don't care about me, you know. I remember, I, I've, I didn't feel that friendship, that love. Hashem should help us. We can't, obviously, in, in 40 minutes or 50 minutes, we can't say everything, but these are opening insights to give us an idea 
as to how important it is to study the Torah, to study all the portions of the Torah, the stories in the Torah especially. Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman, those who study his teachings see that he was an incredible, great scholar and, and genius and rabbi in all qualities. He said to his students that what gave me the whole fuel the whole fuel for religion, for life, was that when I was a kid, when I was a child, he grew up, his parents lived in the house where the Baal Shem Tov had lived prior to them. He didn't say that the holiness of the walls did it. He said that the students of the Baal Shem Tov used to gather there. After the Baal Shem Tov passed away, they would come to visit his gravesite, and they would gather in the house there to share memories. They would tell over stories about their rabbi. And he said, as a child, hearing these stories, that's what gave me the fire, the rocket fuel, to want to be a tzaddik, to want to be special, to want to really get the most out of life. He's telling us this for us to know that when a person, when children are children, we know that children enjoy stories. Usually, no matter what kids are doing, I'll tell you a story, most cases they're willing, if they haven't become addicted, to their Q phones and B phones and all of the nonsense in the world, then a story, stop what you're doing. Daddy or mommy's gonna tell a story now. Come running to hear a story. <clears throat> and if it's the right kind of, Rabbi Nachman said that people say, you wanna put someone to sleep? You tell them a story, bedtime stories. And he said, I'm gonna tell you that if you wanna wake somebody up, if you wanna turn on someone's soul, if you wanna bring somebody to life, tell them a story. The right kind of story will infuse a person with life more so than anything else. Hashem should give us the opportunity, the privilege, the wisdom to, to absorb the guidance of Hashem as presented in the Torah and to be able to give our children what we can give them. Sometimes parents think if I had another $10, 10 million dollars, if instead of just buying him a brand new <coughs> a brand new uh, to Toyota, if I would buy him a BMW, then he would like me, then he would listen to what I had to say. And they don't know that that's not gonna do it, that's not what's gonna do it. Unfortunately, in most cases, and you can ask the people, most of those kids who are spoiled, who are given things that they shouldn't be given, just like the example we gave, give a four-day-old child a steak, you're gonna kill them. Give a teenager things that they shouldn't, that are way beyond, they, they can't really appreciate and respect, it's going to hurt them. It's going to destroy them, chas v'shalom. We should be zochet to be guided by Hashem's wisdom. And, and more important than anything, this great rabbi, Rabbi Natanzal, once was speaking to his students, and he was teaching them Torah, and those that read his books see that his books are so inspiring and motivating, that's just reading the book. Imagine if you were sitting at his lecture when he was speaking live, how inspiring and motivating it was. When he finished the lecture, he said, listen carefully. He said, everything you heard, everything you heard now, if you won't combine it with a lot of prayer, heaven help you, heaven help you. Meaning that sometimes people read books, they read books about child rearing, you hear a lecture and it makes sense and the person says, I got it. I got it, now I know, now I know exactly what to do. If you don't pray, if you don't plead with Hashem, help me remember, 
and help me that at the time that the circumstances come up, I should make the right decision, I should make the right choice, do the right thing. If it's not accompanied with a lot of prayer, there's tremendous likelihood that the person will not succeed. Judaism and life is a combination. It's a combination of knowledge and prayer, Torah and tefillah, the sun and the moon, male and female. All the, the, the books show us this. We should be zochet to this healthy combination to enjoy seeing our children develop in a healthy, good way and, and never too late. There's no concept of a person saying, I missed the opportunity, I missed the boat. The Torah teaches us as long as there's life, there's hope. There are many people that made many mistakes as long as a person recognizes the mistake. There's a pasuk that says, Mechase pshav lo yatzliach. If a person is in denial, if a person covers up their mistakes, they cannot succeed. If a person admits the ozev and they try to do what they can to leave it, to change their ways, Yerucham, they'll invoke the kindness of Hashem. Hashem should show His great kindness to all of us. We should be zuched to enjoy our children, grandchildren, husbands, spouses, each other, and be zuched to see the gulash leima b'mehera b'yameno. Amen v'yameno. Please, questions. So I'll ask the question, Rabbi. Please. Our biggest challenge now is the, uh, <coughs> everybody understand that social media and iPhone, iPads, all this for kids is a huge, huge problem. Distraction, even not today, not the content. The content is not the, the real issue today. It's the time they spend on, on those devices. The addiction. The addiction and the time they spend on it. Which because we see a trend that the kids when he's in elementary school until 12 years old, 11, 12, it, but as we start being called bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, right away it becomes a trend to want a, a cell phone or whatever. It starts with one, with two, that's the cool guy, the cool girl of the class, so she put pressure on the other one, and they, they, although the parents don't want these kind of the items at home, it's it just if one kid has it, it starts to be like a virus, and start to 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 to, to bring uh, this to everyone, and then social pressure, parents, and any way my friend has it, why you don't live with me, and start cleaning. How do we try to resolve such a challenge? Peer pressure, very important question, very important problem. The answer is, <clears throat> there's, there's a, a variety of pieces to the answer. Number one, what we said earlier, it starts from when a child is very young, developing respect and love. This combination of respect and love. If a child really respects a parent, and if a parent says, we don't do this, I don't do, we don't do this, the fact that they see someone else doing it doesn't make it right, doesn't mean that they have to do it. You know, there's people, and we started off by saying that we are all different. Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu that you, a leader of the Jewish people has to be someone that recognizes, which means just because someone else has something, doesn't mean that I have to have it. Just because someone else does something, if someone else is doing drugs, would, would, doing heroin, 
Is it okay, is it reasonable for my child to come home and say, he's doing heroin, why shouldn't I? If we know that doctors today are saying, doctors are saying that the addiction to the internet is worse, it's much stronger, much more captivating than the addiction to drugs and alcohol. So we recognize that this is really a serious thing. So here again, it's a matter of things that are competing with each other. The peer pressure is a competition, that a child sees someone else doing something, there's a natural tendency to do that, and then there's the home. If, if the home is really solid, really solid, first of all, the, there's a question of the parents choosing what school the kids go to and what kids they associate with. If we know that there are kids that are going in a certain direction and, and I, I, I prefer my child not go in that, that direction, I have to think carefully. Is my child strong enough to be put together with those kids and he'll be able to understand that just because they're doing something doesn't mean that I have to go along. He's going to have the backbone to stand up and say, I don't care. I don't care if you're jumping the train track, if you're doing something dangerous, doesn't mean I'm going to follow you in doing it, that kind of thing. So there's a number of elements that go into this. Number one, self-respect, a child knowing that there's right and wrong, there's good and bad, and it's always a matter of choices. And, and the learning process of learning what's good and what's bad. Rabbi Nachman says that a person says, I have to have my coffee in the morning. I have to have my coffee. That's an addiction. A, a Jew, a human being, doesn't want to have to have anything other than Hashem. I have to have Hashem. Everything else is negotiable. I have the coffee, it's great. I don't have the coffee, also okay. I'm going to survive, I'm going to live, I'm going to go to work. I'm, going to, I'm not going to say I didn't have my coffee, I can't say hello to my wife, I can't, I can't I'm, I'm paralyzed. You know, here again, the uh, priorities, all, a lot of different factors that are going into this. So here, this yirah and ahava, if that's really where it's supposed to be, then even when there's competing kids that go to school and somebody tries drugs, and sometimes you hear there was a kid who was there, and said, I'm not doing it. What do you mean, we're all do I don't care, I'm not doing it. Where did they get that strength from? Some of that strength, some of that strength comes from personal intellect. Child is, some children are smart or less smart, and some of it comes from this yir'ah and ahava, that I'm part of a family, that the family structure has a certain strength to it, that when it's competing with peer pressure, this wins. They're saying do it, and they're 50, and my parents and my brothers were, were, were together. There's a deep love and respect between us, and we don't do it. I don't care if they do it. I see they're going in the car on Shabbat. My next-door neighbors are getting into a car. They go into a car, why can't I? Why, why wouldn't the child ask that? Because they've been taught that this is something extremely important. Unfortunately, most of us, when the internet came, when these came out, we didn't realize how dangerous this is. And some of us still don't realize that it's a weapon. You know, when you take driver's lessons, some of the driver's teachers will tell you a car is a weapon. A car is a machine gun. A car can kill one person, 10 people, 50, you know, and, and can, can, can kill the inhabitants of the car. We hear it every single day in Israel. You turn on the radio, I live in Israel, 
Every single day they talk about the car, ac- the car accidents and especially the motorcycle and motorbike accidents all the time, or just about every single day. And, and a person hearing that, <coughs> and now my child wants a motorcycle, this, that. Would I put a loose, gu- you know, am I putting a loose cannon in, into somebody's hand? Recognition, it, it requires us realizing how important something is, how important it is to have something or not to have something being able to share that with a kid so that if there's no other choice, if we don't have another school to send them to, if we're putting them into a, into a, 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 a pool with sharks, we have to be able to try to equip them with the ability to be able to, you know, to stand up to it. And unfortunately, most kids today don't have that strength themselves. There's a concept of idealism. I remember growing up as a teenager, 50, 50 years ago, 55 years ago, there was a certain level of idealism among kids, where if kids thought that something was right, I remember at that time, just to give an example, they were, the, the, you had the Iron Curtain at the time. There were a few million Jews trapped in the Soviet Union, and the, the, the Soviet government wasn't letting them get out. And there were people who were staging demonstrations. Let's go demonstrate in front of the United Nations. Let's go demonstrate in front of the Soviet embassy. Let my people go. Let... And teenagers, that's what they did at the time. They got together and, and went to these because there was an idealism. And it meant staying up at night. It meant traveling. It meant sometimes risking that police would show up sometimes in horses and, you know, to, to threaten people if the demonstration wasn't 100% legal. There was today, today, we're living in a different generation where unfortunately... Many times kids don't learn idealism. They're not le- they, they, the values have dropped tremendously. The concept of going to synagogue. I speak to people in, in my own community, different people, and Friday night the kids aren't going to synagogue. And I'm shocked like. I know one of the highlights of my life growing up as a kid was going to synagogue Friday night. It was, it was like breathing. There, was, it wasn't, there wasn't ever a question of staying home to play with toys, you know, I don't want to go to shul, you know. It was, number one, it was special, it was important, you know, it was so meaningful. And sometimes we forget, we don't realize. And again, a kid said, no, I want to play with my toy. Okay, play with your toy. Not realizing that here, the child doesn't know, they don't know themselves what's more important, what's more special. If I teach them, if I tell them the toys, you'll be, we're going to come home from the city, you're going to be able, the toys aren't leaving. This is one Friday night comes once a week. The prayers, on, the singing in the synagogue is so special. <coughs> you're neshama. You know, there's a lot of education that's needed. Unfortunately, the way we're living today, most people don't have the time or they think they don't have the time to be able to communicate this. Each one of us has to try our best, you know, to, to give as much as we can to enlighten them as to how, if our children or our grandchildren, to be able to know how special this is, that this is a tremendous, a mother says, you, wow, daddy's taking you to synagogue, you're so lucky, I wish I could go, I wish I could go to the synagogue, Friday night is so special, if, if it's presented the right way, there's a, cha- a good chance that they'll get it. Another question? Please. Um, more particularly, sometimes there's brothers and sisters, and sometimes they, you know, it's sometimes childish 
when they're young, sometimes they can bite, sometimes they scratch, sometimes they can hit. They hit their brothers. So normally and naturally, the, the parent gets upset, okay? If he's good enough, he doesn't hit or not. So the rabbi spoke about consequences. What type of consequences that we can uh, uh, apply to this uh, situation? Or these, or what type of consequences uh, we uh, uh, apply to the children? And also, I believe it's not going to be uh, uh, something that's delayed because they're not going to connect with what they've done before. It has to be like kind of immediate. And, uh, yeah. Very, very good question. A question that when, when a child does something wrong, hitting another child, whatever it is, what type of consequences, how should it be done? One of the mistakes that many people make, you're going to be punished. You are not going to the party. You're not going to this. And they don't keep their word. Parents say they threaten with the punishment and they don't carry through. That's an example of something that causes a lack of respect a lack, of, a lack of fear. If you say you're going to do something, you must make sure to do it. Consequences usually could mean taking away any type of privileges. Something that the child likes, something that the child wants, that they know that this is going to be taken away if they do such a thing. You know, and want, but never, always, never getting angry, never losing my temper when a child, no matter what the child does wrong, to try not to lose my temper, because if I lose my temper, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Sometimes you have to make believe you're angry. You have to show anger. But inside there's complete control and make an intelligent decision as to what the punishment, what the consequences are going to be, that the child is going to know that it's important, it's expensive enough that I'm not going to do it. Now, there's another issue that at, in the heat of the moment, say you're sorry, otherwise I'm going to... Two things. Number one, very often the child cannot say I'm sorry at that moment because they're crazy. They got into a fight, they're crazy. And if they do say I'm sorry, they don't really mean it. So again, it's a matter of making an intelligent decision that there, there is a, there's a need for apology. We said before, a person who denies their mistake, their sin, will not succeed. If they admit and they change, so there's a need for that admission, but it's gotta be done the right time and the right way. To, to admit that I made a mistake, that's one of the things that'll help, because people don't like doing that. A person doesn't like admitting that they did something wrong. That's part of what's gonna help them not to do it again. They don't wanna go through that thing, they remember that I had to apologize, I had to this, and again, there was a consequence. I lost out on an important privilege. It's, it's expensive. As much as I want to hit that, it's going to make me think twice or three times whether I'm going to do it. Just for code, you have a need to apologize. What's, what's the, 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 the technique being the weight that they, they calm down? Exactly. In the moment, some people say, right, in, they're fighting, fighting. You, you say you're sorry, you say... At that moment, one of two things could happen very often. Either they're so angry because they got hit by the... No, they're so angry that they won't say it, no matter what you tell them. Or if they do say it, 
It's not really serious. It's not really serious. You want them to say it when things have calmed down and when they're thinking clearly and, and to be able to explain what you did is terrible, what you did is you know, not the right thing. And when a person does something wrong, Hashem requires apology. That's part of correcting a sin. Vidui, vidui. To be able to say and admit that I did something wrong. If they have kids, kids not. Of course, of course. It's very difficult to tell a child not to do something if you are doing it, unless there are extenuating circumstances. A parent who needs a computer for the work that they do, but even then, if the child sees that it's an addiction by the parent, then the child can get addicted. If the child sees that there's boundaries that my parents know boundaries. And my boundary, and again, we're not equal. I don't sit in my daddy's chair, I don't sit in mommy's chair. We're not equal. Just because daddy does this doesn't mean that I can do it. We're not the same. Those are things that could help, could help them realize that. Of course, the, the best thing is when they can learn by example, when they see that even though a parent wants something, they're not gonna, because it's not the right thing, you know, whatever it is. Question? If a child gets growing, how would you handle the situation? If a child gets, gets bullied, bullied. bullied. Very, very important and a very serious issue in the world. <clears throat> Children getting bullied. One of the worst mistakes is ignoring it. Ignoring it. Number one, another mistake is assuming that the child didn't do anything, it, the first thing is requires careful analysis to find out, is it true? Is it true? How did it start? Is there any, any guilt on your side? What did, did you do anything? That kind of thing. If, but if a child feels that they're being ignored or they're being punished unjustly, those are, those are total destruction things. So if a child is being bullied, <coughs> It, it could take, go down to the school, go down, get in touch with the administration of the school, the teacher, the, rat, the principal, get in touch with the parents of that child to, be, to show your child that you care. That, that's, even if you can't change the situation, if you can't change, to, to train the child to be, able to, to be able to avoid it, how to avoid it in certain cases, or in certain cases to have to strike back. In certain cases, in certain cases, each case differently. But the most important thing is that that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible mistake. That a person, you know, and and I'm a, I I want to I want to look into this immediately. Who was the kid? When did it happen? To show that this is very that you are very important to me. That that's the you know. Unfortunately, this happened many times, and I hear stories of children. Who grow teenagers and grow, and they're damaged for life because they went through this bullying thing and nothing. It was ignored. It was ignored. It was ignored. Or sometimes they were afraid to tell it to their parent. If a parent sees a change in a child, this is one of the terrible things going on today. A parent sees suddenly a child isn't talking, isn't communicating. I heard about this today, and and some usually there's some kind of abuse going on. 
And sometimes a child is afraid or ashamed to mention it. But if a parent sees a change, an obvious change going on in a child, to assume, not to assume that the child is bad or doing something wrong, something's going on. And I have to take it serious and I have to investigate and look and find what, what it's all about. Please. I have a question. I think one of the crises we face is children having boundaries in healthy choices and eating and lifestyle choices. And I think our children are in a confusing environment. So if you want to put in place healthy food choices in your home and then they're, they go to the synagogue, they go to school, where they see, but here I can have soft drinks and here I can have chips and candy and all these things. It, it makes it hard in terms of parenting. What do you recommend in terms of approach to be able to help children learn these boundaries because it's for life that we're trying to implement? It goes back to what we said before. It's a matter of building, earning their respect. Earning their respect. If they know that you love them, you care about them much more than anyone else in the world, and that when you say something, you're not saying it just because you, you want to say it. When you're saying something, it's something intelligent and something that has reason backing. To tell a child, this is unhealthy. Why? What does it do? Candy, cavities. You're going to go to the dentist. I'm going to show you. The dentist is going to drill. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. It's going to cost $1,000, sometimes $5,000, a root canal, these things to be able, a, a lot of education that's needed, teaching, explaining, where there's, again, there's an element of fear and respect that because I said so at a certain age, when a child gets older, it's a matter of teaching them and explaining to them and giving them, hopefully, the self-respect and self-confidence that just because I'm in a synagogue and there's candy, chocolate, and there's grapes and watermelon, I'll take the grapes. Just because it's in front of me doesn't mean I have, just because everyone else doesn't mean I, they don't know. They don't have my mother, they don't have my father, who I, I respect. I know, I, I believe what they said is, 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 is right, is the right thing. And sometimes we don't, we're, we're human beings, we're not angels. The fact that sometimes a person deviates, it doesn't mean the end of the world. You don't destroy the person as long as the person is trying within reason to stay within the right boundaries. Good question. <clears throat> if, a, if a person has a child that's defiant, especially a teenager, a, a major situation today all over the world, defiant, a, a teenager who says no. A child says, you have to go to the doctor. No, I'm not going, that kind of thing. What do I do? For starters, we said before, all cases are different. There's not one response to all cases in this kind of thing. Depending on who it is, depending on the... One thing for sure is not to lose it. If I lose it, if I start yelling, if I lose control of myself and lose control and, and, and threaten, make a threat that I cannot keep, all, all of those are clearly the wrong things to do. It's a matter of thinking clearly can I help this child now? What can I do that'll give this child the best possible chance of doing the right thing? One example is a mother and father. Sometimes a mother will say, a father will say something to the child. If it's one parent, it has a certain value. If both parents, if a child sees that both parents are united and there's tremendous respect between them and love between them, 
and both parents approach a child in a respect, with respect. Not you're a nothing, you're a nobody. There's a pasuk, King Solomon says, Al tochach letz pen yisnaeka. Don't rebuke a child by calling them an idiot, a fool, or something like that, because they might come to hate you for it. There's another way of doing it, of saying, you're such a good person. You're so smart. This isn't, this, is, this, this isn't fitting for you. This is something I would never expect somebody with your intelligence to make a choice like this, to, to lose out on something so important, that kind of thing. That's one of the ways of responding. But again, thinking... Now, sometimes, especially in today's times, <clears throat> sometimes there, there, there becomes a situation where a child will not hear it from their parents. The, 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 the relationship deteriorated, unfortunately, to such a point they can't hear it. A parent has to think at the time, even though it hurts. It hurts. What do you mean you're not listening to me? What do you mean that I, I have to go talk to somebody? Sometimes it's a matter of talking to a rabbi or a close friend, someone who that child can hear it better from sometimes, to give the child a better opportunity to be able to take it. <clears throat> I once had a situation with a close friend, somebody that I was very close to for years, and, and something happened that the relationship changed tremendously. And at one point, years later, I met this person, and both of us had grown a lot since then, <clears throat> and I thought, I want to go over to this person and apologize, and I want to tell them that I'd, I'd like to start, restart the relationship. And I mentioned it to my rabbi, and he said, and I thought, wow, I'm such a good person. I'm so wonderful. And I said it to my rabbi, and he said, don't, don't do it. No chance. It's got to come from someone else. Because of how this relationship was damaged, it's going to require someone else starting this process, someone else going to them. If you do it, there's almost no chance of them being able to accept it the right way from you. If a third party who's 100% neutral and someone they respect, if they'll present it, there's a, there's a possibility. And, and sure enough, it worked. It worked. For those that want, there's a website called breslovtorah.com where there are hundreds of these lectures from my rabbi. One of my rabbis, an outstanding, outstanding scholar, and also lectures that I've given. breslovtorah.com Take a look. If you want, you can enjoy many, many lectures of this type.